but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Father, thank you for those words. Thank you for the privilege that it is to worship you. God, we thank you for your word, and I ask that you would empower me this morning, that you would, by your grace, convict, reveal to us your grace, reveal to us your love. God, I am broken. I am unworthy to preach, but God, you are worthy. You alone deserve the highest praise. And so, God, I ask that you would make much of yourself this morning through me and that you would allow me to be forgotten. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So, my name's Matt. I uh, work with the college group here, and and, uh, we are continuing our series through the book of Acts called Witnesses. Uh, And in the fall of 1955, uh, a group of five missionaries set out for central Ecuador. Uh, their names were uh, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott. And they felt led to be witnesses for the gospel to the Rwani Indians. And, and they had heard about the Rwani. Elliot had met a guy who was a missionary to the Quechua Indians. And, and the guy said, listen, they don't know Jesus, but the auka, uh, auka is the word that we call them in the Quechua language. It means savages. I don't know that it's a good idea for you guys to go down there. But these guys thought, you know what? These, these Indians need to hear about Jesus. We're going to go. And so they went. And uh, Saint was a pilot, so, so they started to do some flyovers and, and found a village of, of, of the Wawani. And, and so I guess if you, I'm not a pilot, I've been told this, if you fly in a big enough circle and you lower something, it just kind of stays there. So they took a basket and they lowered it and, and, and started putting gifts in there for the Indians. And so the Indians at first obviously were freaked out by this flying thing, but then they started to see the gifts and they would take them and they started doing this for a few months and then, then they started to put gifts back in. And so after a while, the, the missionaries thought, you know what, we need, to, we need to land, it's time. We need to actually engage these people face to face. And so they did. They landed on a beach near a river and started to, over this loudspeaker, call out just simple phrases that they had learned. You know, we come in peace, welcome, we're, we're here, hello. And, uh, and eventually a group of three, two, two girls and a guy, they did. They came down to the beach and, and they at first were hesitant, but they hung out with the missionaries all day long. And, and, and Nate Saint even had a little Piper airplane that, model that he, he gave this guy, Non-Kiwi, and and basically said, hey, you want to go for a ride? And so they, they took Non-Kiwi up for a ride in the plane. And everything was going really, really good. And, and Non-Kiwi and the girl, they started to walk back. And kind of their chaperone stayed behind for a little bit. And as they were walking back, they, they encountered a few of the men from the village. And they said, well, you know, well, where's your chaperone? And Non-Kiwi panicked. He said, uh, 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 
the, the, the guys that were flying, they, they took her. I don't know what happened. We, we escaped. And uh, so the men gathered their ten of them. They grabbed their spears. They started to head to the beach. And on the way, they encountered the chaperone. And the chaperone said, no, no, they're, they're great. They're fine. They're, they brought us gifts. They're, they're fine. But, but these men didn't believe her. And so they, they proceeded to go to the beach and encounter the five missionaries. And one by one, slaughtered all five of them. You see, being a witness for the gospel requires choices. Some of those choices can be really hard. I mean, the missionaries, they knew that these, these Indians were dangerous, but they didn't know that it was going to cost them their life. And over this series, we've talked about what it is to be a missionary. We've talked about how at Pentecost, these cowardly apostles were just made bold by the Holy Spirit, and how Peter, on the first day, walked out and started preaching, and thousands, thousands began to believe. And then another time, preach again, and thousands more believed. And they, you know, they didn't, the, the leaders didn't like it, so they beat them, and they'd say, you stop preaching. they say, no way. And so they'd go up the next day, and thrash is still on their back. They're just preaching, and the church is growing and growing. But here's the reality. Where the church is growing, opposition will rise. When the gospel infringes on people, people's power and their stuff and their influence, they, they react and sometimes they react violently. You see, being obedient to the call to be a witness brings us all to this point where we're going to be asked the question, are you on this side or are you on that side? Are you on the team of God or are you on the team of man? And this is really where reality hits. This is the moment kind of where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And we're, we're going to look today at a story about a man who is being obedient to this call to be a witness and kind of kind of see how he responds and, and, and reacts to this. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts 6, uh, verse 8. I know you guys have already read it all because every time Bill or William speak and says, hey, read for next week, you're like, I've already read it, man. I'm, I'm on it. So I know you've already read, probably. Um, but I'm going to kind of set it up. So last week, William talked about these, these, this kind of growing pain in the church, right? The, the Hellenistic Jewish widows were not getting taken care of in the same way as the Hebraic Jewish widows. And so the apostle said, well, we can't stop serving you all through the, the, the ministry of prayer and studying of the word and preaching of the word to, to wait tables. And so, so they say, pick seven guys. And so they pick these seven guys and they list them out. But one guy in particular named Stephen, they call a man, of, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And, and as I was reading that, I was like, why, why is that description about him and not the other guys? And it could just be a literary device, like, hey, I'm going to talk about this guy later, remember him. But I also kind of think, you know, there's just some people that you encounter that it's like, man, of course that guy was chosen to be a leader in our community. Of course that guy was chosen to be the guy to take care of us. I mean, look at all these other things that he's doing in our community and in our church. And starting in, in 6 8, it says, uh, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. I mean, he was already doing this great stuff, wonders and signs among the people. And they said, Yeah, that guy, he's already doing this great stuff. Bring him in to help take care of our people. And, and we kind of know that he was, uh, other than the text, we just kind of know that he was doing this amazing stuff because 
people, people start to get angry with him. People start to be opposed to Stephen. And, and I don't, I could be wrong, I don't think people are going to be quite as opposed to you taking care of widows as they are to you preaching a gospel that infringes on their rights and, and their, their influence. But that's what happens. And so, outsiders get angry. They, they plot against them. Look at what it says in, in 6.9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. See, Stephen was doing this amazing stuff, and people from these different synagogues, these Jewish people were getting angry because the, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So preaching, you're, you're talking what, everything it is against being a Jew. And they were trying to make Stephen look like a fool, but, but they couldn't because they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they're trying to make him look like a fool, and Stephen ends up making them look silly because of this wisdom and the spirit which, which, which he is speaking. And just like all of us, people get angry. When, when I'm at home and my wife makes me look silly because I said something that clearly was not the right way to do it, I get angry. I'm like, oh, I knew that was the right way. So they get angry, and they plot against him. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So these men devised the plan. They stirred up these false charges against Stephen. And, and they bring him before the council. And this council is the Sanhedrin. They're the 70 kind of men who kind of ruled the Jewish society in a sense. The high priest is the, is the head of that. And this is the same Sanhedrin that not a few months ago had a guy by the name of Jesus in front of him, right? This Jesus that was speaking things against kind of the way life was for them. And they said, no, 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 we can't have this. And so they brought charges against him, said, he's going to tear down our temple. Same thing they said about Stephen. And they probably thought, hey, it worked the first time. Let's do it again. Let's bring him before the council. And so they do. And basically, the accusations are, are twofold. They say, he never ceases to speak against the holy place, which is the temple, and he never ceases speaking words against the law and Moses. <clears throat> and here's the thing about the charges. Before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there were three kind of like main pillars of Jewish piety. And that was the promised land, which was kind of their territory, the uh, Torah, which was the law, and then there was the, the temple, which was their place of worship. So for our alliteration, it's territory, temple, and Torah. Yeah, okay. It's actually kind of hard to say fast. So basically, in one false accusation, they're saying, listen, this guy's attacking everything it is to be a pious Jew. Everything it is to be Jewish, he's saying it's things that are blasphemous, and it's against God, and we can't stand it. And then this Caiaphas, this same 
Caiaphas that asked Jesus the same question. He says, are these things true? You see, there it is. That's the question. Are you on this side or are you on this side? Are you on the team of God? Are you with God's people or are you with man, with our people? So Stephen's got to decide. Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to do what it takes to follow him no matter what? Or am I going to say what I need to say to save face? Maybe get out of here without with a lashing or maybe no lashings. Maybe I can just say what isn't completely true to, to save my hide and then I can kind of go back to doing the good stuff. But that's not what Stephen does. That's not what he believes. And here's the reality. It's the same for us today. The same reality for us today and the thing that I want us to kind of be our gospel lens through which we view the text and just life in general. And that's this, that being a witness for Jesus is costly. It's costly. And here's the reality. We don't know how costly. We just don't know. We know that it's costly. That's all we know. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We also know that Jesus was killed on a cross. It's costly. But Jesus, and Stephen knows this, but he can't stop and he won't stop following Jesus. So he continues on. And, and by the way, if you read this kind of long discourse, it sort of looks like he's giving the Sanhedrin a history lesson, which is really funny because it, it would basically be like my two-and-a-half-year-old going, Daddy, let me teach you how to change this tire. <laughs> I mean, I'm no auto mechanic, per se, but I got tire changing down, right? I, I can change a tire. My two-year-old can't even, like, carry the wrench, barely. These Sanhedrin, remember, pious Jew, Torah, they knew it. They, they knew the Torah. They knew the history of Israel. So why is, why is Stephen going through this, this history discourse? And basically what he's doing is this. He's taking these three pillars of Jewish piety that they held in such reverence, and he's saying, guys, you're holding it so tight that it's really hard for you to see God moving and being active outside of these three things, outside of your territory, outside of your Torah, outside of your temple. You believe that that is the only place in which God moves and acts, and you're wrong. He's saying you're, you're taking these things that God gave you as a gift, and you've changed them, you've perverted them in, outside of their intended purpose. And so, really quickly, before we keep going, I, as, as shepherds and preachers and teachers and, and pastors... It's, it's one thing to just kind of say this is the text, and it's another thing to kind of help us to enter into the text. And, and what I mean by that is we've talked about Stephen. He's full of grace. He's full of faith. He's doing these amazing things. And sometimes we get this, and sometimes we are this. And then a lot of the time, and I'm just speaking to myself, a lot of the time I'm over here with these guys, and I'm holding on to these pillars in my life that I hold on to so tightly that it's hard for me to even see God acting outside of these Thing. So as we kind of go forward, let's kind of embrace both of them. Embrace the reality that more often than not, we may be over here too. So starting in 7 verse 2, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he had lived in Haran, he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. 
And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land which, which you are now living. Yet he gave no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia, where he lived, and, and he said, listen, brought him to this land and said, someday, someday, your descendants, even though you don't have a child, your descendants, will, this will be their land. They will occupy it. This will be their land. But before that happens, 400 years, your, your descendants are going to be wanderers. They're going to be sojourners. They're going to wander. And, and in fact, at that time, they're going to be stationary for one spot for 400 years and be enslaved. And then Stephen kind of goes into how that happened. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him, in, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. So you go from Abraham, they have Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has the 12 sons, which are the patriarchs. And one of those is Joseph. And, and the brothers of Joseph get jealous of him and they sell him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. And through being in prison, uh, through all kinds of oppression, God, it's saying God is with Joseph in Egypt. E Joseph ends up being second of command only to Pharaoh all over Egypt. He is second in command. God actively working in Egypt. And then he goes on to, to talk about Moses, who was saved at a young age. And he, and he was in Egypt and then left Egypt, was spoken to at the bush, returns, and there's plagues, and there's, there's just the exodus, and then there's wandering in the desert. There's all these things. And he's saying, listen, guys, it is not about the land. It's about God. The land is only the place where, where it's not the only place where God dwells and acts among his people. It was meant to be a beautiful gift through which God reveals himself to the nations around them. The, the, the other nations are meant to look on you in this land and say, wow, Yahweh is worthy of worship. It was meant to be a tool to be used to advance the kingdom of God. And, and the reality is this plays itself out for us today in so many ways, right? Like, like we, have, we feel like there's this, we have this God-given right to our, our stuff, to our territory, to our, to our place. Like, for instance, our homes. Listen, we come home, and it's like, oh, out there's bad stuff, and that's, that's where the world is, and our homes are like our place of refuge. It's where I'm just coming to, to relax and be calm and, and get, get, get away from everything that's out there. It's my place where I need to recharge and to rest. And hey, listen, I agree with you to a point. I agree. I mean... Listen, this happens to me all the time. I come home, and, you know, my wife's been with my kid all day, and she's basically like this, take this thing and get out of here. And, and I'm like, no, nah, baby, I've been doing the Lord's work all day. I'm too, I need to rest. I, need, I just need to recharge for God, you know? Like, that's, I'm so guilty of this. But here's the reality. Dads, if you may be a godly man, and you go to work, and you are just loving on your coworkers and your neighbors and you're just witnessing and you're, you're, you're telling them about Jesus. And then you get home and you just sit down to rest and you don't engage the heart of your wife or the heart of your children. Or, or maybe you're a wife or a mother who, who it's just, you know, you're the type of lady that somebody calls at like three in the morning and it's like, hey, I need you to pray for this. And you're like prayer warrior, you're up, you're You've already called like 15 other people and you have this network of prayers and you're just like, you're covered, holy, you know. You're just that 
everybody knows you. It's like, oh, she's the best. She, if you ever need anything, call that lady. But then maybe you get home and you see that your daughter has taken her markers and colored all over the padding of your kitchen seat. And now you're like, well, I guess our seat is pink. And this happened last night to us, so it's... <laughs> and, and you're like, ah, oh, how could this be? And that was me, not her. So just, but like, you just, you just don't, you're so active and loving to your church and your community and your people, but you, you're failing at home to recognize, I need to be praying for my husband. I need to pray, be praying for my kids and my, my wife. And we get home and we plop on the couch and we check our social media and we, we spend time working in the yard or cleaning or whatever it is. We, we have some college leaders that literally have called and said, hey, my kids are grown and, and older and, and they're out of the house. If you guys have a college student that needs to live with us for a season, maybe a long season, just call us. They can, we've got rooms that are just empty. I mean, that's, that's awesome. It just is. What would it look like for you if you have the, the capacity to pray about going through the process for, to become foster parents or, or to adopt. Even if you're older and you think, no, we can't do that. Yeah, you can. Is it risky? Absolutely. But we just talked about following Jesus being costly. Our homes are a safe haven, but they should also be at the forefront of our ministry, not the back burner. And I want to speak softly here, too, because what the Jews were doing is they were elevating their land. And we do this a lot. Like, I'm so grateful to live in this country at this time. I don't have to worry about somebody walking through those doors and disrupting our service because of, we're speaking something that is, is against the law. Right? We are safe here. We're grateful to be Americans. But if you are elevating your allegiance to America above your allegiance to God, that's an idol. It's just an idol. If America goes down tomorrow, God is still ever-present. He is still active and moving. And America was never meant to be the place. It was always meant to be a vessel used to advance the kingdom of God. It was meant to be a place to make much of God, not us, not of itself. Stephen knew this about the promised land, and he tried to convey it to the Jews. Now Stephen returns to Moses to make his next point about the Torah. So starting in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. That's the law. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Stephen is, Stephen is saying subtly, 
hey, this, this Moses that you guys revere so highly, our fathers rejected him. This, this Moses who said, hey, God is going to raise up a prophet from among you. He's going to keep raising up prophets and keep raising up prophets until the ultimate prophet arrives. Our fathers rejected him. And now he's saying, you know, you guys who are holding so reverently, so tightly to the Torah and to Moses are guilty of doing the same thing. Moses pointed to this great prophet. The Torah and the law point to this great prophet, and you've missed it. The thing about the law is this. It was given at a time when God literally and physically dwelt smack dab in the middle of his people, and he was with his people. And the the thing about that, God is holy. We can't just stroll up to God, right? So there has to be these laws, these regulations, these cleanliness ideas and laws by which we can approach God and worship him, and so that he can, we can dwell in his presence. I mean, this is why, so, so the law is equal to presence of God. That's why David can lay in his bed at night and say, oh, I, I love the law. I mean, let's be real. Nobody in here lays in bed at night and says, oh, I just hit the one-year Bible Leviticus, and I'm in it tomorrow, and I'm so excited. I can't wait to read the law, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, but the law equals presence of God. And the law, what he's saying is, guys, the law revealed to us sin and that we, we couldn't do it. We can't live in a way where God dwells among us. So Jesus had to come in the flesh, God in the flesh, and live and die and make a way so that we could be in his presence and dwell in his presence forever. You've missed the point of the law and you've rejected Jesus for the law. You've taken a gift and turned it into an idol. And we do this all the time with all kinds of different things. John Calvin says in his commentary on Acts that every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. Our college ministry is doing a series on on idolatry right now, and and we just started off by defining it, and it was really simple. We just kind of said, idols are anything that you elevate to the status of God and worship Right? Anything that you give your time and your energy and your affection and your money, all these things that you elevate and put it in the place of God and you worship it. And this is going to sound strange, but when I was thinking through this, all I could think of is Jeff Foxworthy. I'll explain. Just let that sit for a minute. But, but you remember Jeff Foxworthy, the whole you might be a redneck if? Like, you know, like the... Uh, like the, if you own a home that's mobile and five cars that aren't, you might be a redneck. Or there's one that I read, I had to read up on these. It said, if every outlet in your house or building is not up to code, you might be a redneck. And I thought, oh, Bill, we have a redneck church. I just <laughs> have to let you know. <laughs> just so you know. But this kind of thing, this will remind me of it. Like, you might be an idle if, right? So let's start with, if your job, if all you do it's work long hours, and all you do is think about your job, and you get home, and you're just responding to emails, and looking at emails, and thinking about emails, and thinking about your job, and if you're thinking about your job right now, it might be an idol. Or for, for some, you know, I work with college, but this is not just a college thing, social media. If you are a Facebooker, and you just are on Facebook all the time, and you're looking at people's statuses, and you're putting people's statuses, or you're Instagramming all day long, or if you're tweeting all day long, if you're literally tweeting about us, talking about tweeting in church right now, 
It might just be an idol. <laughs> money, if you think about money all the time, if you think about how to get money, where it comes from, how to invest it, how to save it, how to spend it, n- not letting anybody else touch it, not being generous because we need the money, it might be an idol. Family. Family, it's a good gift of God, but if you're only thinking about how to seek your husband's approval or your wife's approval or your kid's approval, if you want them to be your friend, not their parent, if, you, if all you do is think about their safety and their happiness and that's all that consumes you, they might be an idol. And I, I love my daughter. She's two and a half. Super cute. Would make a crummy God. <laughs> I mean, she would. Like, like, how am I supposed to get mad at this God for drawing on our... She would, should be smarter than that. Don't draw on this. You're a God, remember? I mean, that's... She would make a crummy God. And we can laugh about this, but guys, idolatry is an offense to God and it's a, an issue that will leave you heartbroken and shameful and, and just full of shame because it's never enough. The gospel says that Jesus came in the flesh and he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And that through his resurrection, he has adopted us as sons and daughters. He created everything. He invented the plan and executed the plan. He alone is worthy of our worship. Nothing else. The Torah, the law, it's a good gift meant to point us to Jesus. But let us not take these good gifts and pervert them and let worship end on them. So finally, Stephen goes after this understanding of their place of worship, the temple. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joseph when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for, God, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the, pl- what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all things? Stephen's saying this pillar, this third idea that the temple is the only place where God dwells and works and is active, that's rubbish. That's rubbish. The temple was meant to show that God desires to dwell among his people. I mean, he's saying, listen, God says, I made everything. The heavens, where the earth, that's where I rest my feet. You can't make a house to contain me. It was meant, the temple was meant to show that God desires to dwell among his people and that Jesus came and lived in the flesh among his people and fulfilled that. It was meant to point to him. It's always meant to point to him. And this can play itself out really easily for us. And I'm talking to community Bible church kind of core here. For whatever reason, we're kind of like, let's not be naive, we're kind of like the cool, hip church to be in in town, or at least one of them. And, you know, Bill talks against this, but Bill talks about how uncool he is, and William talks about how uncool he is, and they're both absolutely right. And, <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I'm not that cool either. <laughs> but here's the reality. God is doing something here. He is 
moving here, and, and there's gospel ministry happening here every Sunday and during the week in the city of Savannah. It's a beautiful thing. We pray for it. We pray with fervor that God would continue to do this until he returns. But the fact that he is doing this should be humbling. It should bring us to our knees, and it should stir up for us hearts of service and worship, not arrogance. Wouldn't it be a blessing if we were known as the church in town that serves well, that loves well, that, that loves Jesus more than anything else and desires to make much of his name and equip disciples to go and make more disciples? That's all we want to do here. And by God's grace, he is doing it, and we pray that he continues. But let us not allow that to creep in and make CBC an idol. If CBC goes down tomorrow, God is still moving and still active in Savannah. There are churches all over Savannah confessing Christ, preaching the gospel, and doing good works in this town. So, so let us not just assume that CBC is, CBC is the place where God works and dwells and lives. So Stephen makes one final statement, and at first it really just seems like he's angry, like he's just building up, and then he's like, ah, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. But when Stephen calls them stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's just repeating what the prophets of the Old Testament said prior. The Jews, unrepentant Israel, the prophets said this over and over and over again. You're missing it. He's telling the Sanhedrin, listen, you guys are doing it all over again. All these things that were given to you as good gifts to point to Jesus, you're missing it. You never learn. You always resist the Spirit. These things pointed to Jesus. You missed it, and you killed him. And this angers the Sanhedrin. So they grab them. They take them out of the city. They're just grinding their teeth. They take off their robes. They pick up stones. And one by one, they start to, start to throw them at Stephen and hit him repeatedly until, he's, until he dies. And sometimes being a witness causes us to combat the world's philosophies and actions and rhetoric and the world's idols. And sometimes it causes us to go against the grain of culture to the point that it might enrage the world around us. But here's the second point I want to make here. Being a witness for Jesus is worth it because in the end we get Jesus. Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, if we blink, we might miss something. We know in Acts 2, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 12, it says he's seated at the right hand of God. Mark also says he's seated at the right hand of God. So what's this standing business? Well, if you're called in to be a witness today, you get up, you walk up, you put your hand in the Bible, you say the little thing, and then you sit down and people ask you questions about what you saw or what you didn't see. In this society, you'd come into a, uh, uh, in, in these times, you'd come into a room and everybody would sit down and they'd call a witness, and you would just stand, and you would say what it is that you saw or didn't see. What Luke is saying here is that when we confess Christ as Lord and when we come under his lordship, when, when we 
come under his lordship and authority, he's becoming a witness on our behalf in the places that it matters. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 7, 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. Luke 12, 8 says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. You see, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, and, and what this is saying is that he's our advocate. He's interceding for us. So, so that at the end of all things, he says, oh, him? Oh, no, he's, he's with us. No, he's, he's a witness on our, on our behalf. Her? Oh, no, we, we adopted her. She's ours. See, he's, he's at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us on our behalf. So when we become witnesses, when we come under his lordship and become witnesses for God, what it means is that he's then in turn becoming a witness for us, which is profound. So as we draw to a close, I want to make one more point. Verse 58 talks about Sanhedrin laying garments at the feet of a man named Saul. And chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. Verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul who approved of Stephen's witness, approved of the murder of Stephen, started rampaging the church, terrorizing the church, causing the church to scatter all over. And, and the third point I want to make here that I think the text actually makes is that being a witness for Jesus may seem fruitless, but it's not. And although that's really simple, it might be the most pro profound thing you hear all day. Being a witness for Jesus may seem fruitless, but it's not. You may never, ever get to see the impact of your witness this side of glory. Saul was there. He was violently, he, he approved of the stoning of Stephen and then violently tried to tear the church apart. It would be the modern day equivalent of a member of ISIS getting saved by Jesus and starting planting churches all over the Middle East. It's, it's hard for us to imagine. It's easy for us who know the story of Paul to then go, oh yeah, this is what happened to him. But if you were in that culture and you saw this, it would blow your mind. And you'd do the same thing that you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. But that's what's happening. God is responsible for salvation. God is responsible. We don't know exactly how it happens, but somehow our witness plays a part in it. But here's the thing. If you're talking to a friend or a neighbor or a family member and they reject over and over and over again, it's okay keep praying, keep talking, keep pleading with them. Or a coworker who maybe just doesn't want to hear you. I don't want to hear about Jesus. You keep talking about Jesus. Quit talking about Jesus. I don't want to hear it. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. Here's the reality. You don't know the effect. 
you're going to have. You might be at a water cooler talking to a guy about Jesus, and this guy over here is a Christian who's not bold, hears you, and just gets empowered. Like the Holy Spirit just grabs his heart and says, wow. And then he just starts rampaging the right way, right? He just, office, cubicle one. You know about Jesus? You know about Jesus? You know about Jesus? You know about Jesus? I mean, we just don't know. We don't know. It may appear fruitless, but we know that the word of truth does not return void. We can trust in that. We started the sermon by talking about these five missionaries who were killed, and it presented their families with this question, this choice that they had to make. Elizabeth Elliot and her family and Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, believed that the Warani still needed to hear about Jesus. And so, <laughs> I don't know exactly how this happened, but they basically just moved into the village. It's like these strong women just walked in and plopped their stuff down, and the guys with spears are looking at them, and they're like, what? We're here now. Do something, you know? But they did. They just moved in, and they started to love these people and tell them about the gospel and tell them about Jesus. And, and a few years ago, I, had the, I, worked, I was working with an orphanage down in Ecuador, and this guy said, hey, you want to take a plane ride? Sure, of course. Why not? So we went, and we flew out into the jungle, and this guy started telling me, like, yeah, that's where the, kind of down there is where the missionaries were, were murdered. And we landed, and as we landed, I started to look around, and I just see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these Indians, Wolrani, Kichwa Indians, coming for a Bible conference. They were, they were coming to learn how to read the Scripture better, how to preach the Scripture better, how to worship better, encourage one another, hundreds, if not thousands of Indians that would have never known the gospel arriving to learn and, and then go, how do we be a witness to those who don't know him? Being a witness is costly and we may never ever know this side of heaven how impactful our witness is, but here's the reality. It's worth it. You may never see tangibly the effects of your witness, but keep going. Don't be discouraged because in the end, we get Jesus. We get the author and perfecter of our faith. We get to be with the one who initiated the plan to reclaim all things back to himself and reconcile all things back to himself, the one who invented it and executed it and is worthy of worship. We get to be with him for eternity. We get to be with him for eternity. So let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful. We are so thankful that you initiated this plan, that you invented this plan to reconcile all things back to yourself and that you love us enough to do so. God, I, I ask that you would make us bold. You would, by your spirit, encourage us and by your grace, just make us bold to be witnesses who who are daily asked the question, are you on this side? Are you on that side? Are you with God? Are you against God? Are we, God, I pray that you would just guide us, help us, give us grace, give us mercy. But God, make much of yourself. We know that it's costly. You told us it would be. We know that we may never know how effective our witness is, but Jesus, we trust you and we love you. And we know that 
at the end of all things, we get to be with you. So thank you for that. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.